Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Carol Zaleski, co-author, along with Philip Zaleski, of the book The Fellowship, The Literary Lives of the Inklings, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams. Carol, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay, well, I'm professor of world religions at Smith College, which is a liberal arts college in Massachusetts, uh, single sex, women's college. Uh, I've been here since 1989. I was originally hired for a position in philosophy of religion, but because of my eclectic interests, ended up with a chair as uh, professor of world religions. So I continue to do philosophy of religion, world religions and a variety of things, and along with that, um, write um, very often together with my husband, whom you mentioned, Philip Zaleski, my co-author. Well, as a professor of religion, religion, specifically world religion, on the surface, you wouldn't seem like someone who would undertake a a biography of what was really a mid-20th century English literary group. What led you to write this book? Well, you know, that's true. I, I started out mainly in medieval studies. But then, uh, because the person I was working with in graduate school left, uh, and I was sort of intellectually orphaned, I started to work with people whose interests were more modern. In particular, I got to be um, a student and fan of William James. So that brought me into the 19th century, from the 12th to the 19th. I just jumped over some centuries there. Um, But as a medievalist, I was very attracted to uh, to, especially to Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. They're both scholars of medieval literature and language and thought. So there's a connection there. But I think also um, it was a, an interest that goes back to childhood, especially for my husband, actually. I'm not sure I actually read these people until I was in college, but my husband read them in, as, um, as a child. And uh, so for us together, coming up with this book idea, it was a way to express our gratitude to these authors who had uh, given us a fair amount of enchantment in our lives, as well as uh, connecting to the to our intellectual interests. I, I have to say that it is interesting that that background you referenced, because when you, you, these four people in particular that you focus on in this book, this, this group biography, you're, they represent such a wide range of intellectual interests. We're, we're talking about uh, early modern literature, we're talking about romantic poetry, we're talking about uh, Anglo-Saxon literature, and that, of course, you know, is even before we start getting into the books for which they're most famous: the uh, Hobbit, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It, it, it would seem that you would need to have such a wide, uh, very eclectic background to really, you know, talk about the various aspects that are at play here. When you're not just talking about any one of them, but you're talking about the four in particular that you've uh, focused on. Well, yeah, it's true. One one way to to get that kind of wide range 
of of interests and engagement is simply to read these people because they're own they are all uh, have tremendous catholicity in their tastes and in their and their erudition is uh, I mean all you have to do is just read every book C.S. Lewis ever read and you have a complete uh, education in the humanities um, at least in the humanities but you know I think it I don't think it's accidental that people that that love Tolkien and Lewis often end up discovering these other members of their literary circle and also end up discovering uh, their predecessors, authors like uh, George MacDonald, the Scottish um, religious writer and fairy tale writer, or G.K. Chesterton or some of the other other people that um, th- there's there's something going on there. There's a gestalt to this group. So uh, despite the wide range of periods they deal with and styles of writing, um, they have a lot in common, um, which would be at this point, I think, um, after spending so many years uh, reading their works and learning about them, we it's very what they have in common just really jumps out to, to both my husband and, and me. So I can speak about that if you like, or we can move get to that later if whatever you prefer. Well, let's let, let's talk a bit about the the the, the individuals themselves uh, and okay. the early years, and I, I think the, the the rest will come out as as we get into the biographies because it certainly doesn't it, within your book that you really. Uh, you know, flesh them out over the course of it. But I was, it, I was wondering if you could start by taking us back to the beginning. I mean, wh- what, uh, you know, who was Tolkien? Who was Lewis? Who was uh, Barfield? And what uh, what started them on the careers where they would end up uh, working together, uh, you know, discoursing, uh, commenting on their writings uh, during that, that, that very critical period when, when these intellects really come together in a very magical way? Right. Uh, well, one thing that brings them together, of course, is Oxford. So Oxford is is almost like a character in their story. Um, and Oxford is the intellectual center of um, of Britain, along with Cambridge and the Red Brick Universities. I mean, there's, it's not just one center, but Oxford has a kind of special symbolism in a way, a special interest for people um, who are drawn to the Middle Ages, not just as scholars, but as kind of there's a kind of romantic interest in um, medieval culture that that you find exemplified, for instance, in the pre-Raphaelites of William Morris, you know, that those sort of figures. So um, so that's getting back to, to what they all have in common. But if we wanted to start with Tolkien, um, he, uh, he, he could be described as um, a scholar of Old English, Anglo-Saxon culture, Old English language, all the Germanic languages, really. Um, a philologist. Um, he uh, did groundbreaking work on Beowulf. How did this? T- how did he come to this? Um, we, we have to talk about his war experience. Mm-hmm. Well, we could start with his childhood, if you like. Let, let, and, let's start with his childhood. Because okay. I, I was thinking yeah. the, the war is something that might warrant a, a, a separate examination because it's even before we, t- uh, in addition to Oxford, it is sort of a common theme for so many of them. It, it, obviously, it was a generational experience, but it, it's one that, you know, obviously influences their lives in so many ways before they formally come together. Right. So yeah. maybe we should start so with their childhoods and, and then talk yeah, about the so, war. Yes, so uh, we've got to get um, Tolkien uh, from Southern Africa, Bloemfontein, uh, Orange Free State. We've got to get him from there to Oxford. So there's going to be some uh, traumas along the way that really shape him. 
So um, he was born in, in Southern Africa where his father was, was working. And um, he, um, so Bloemfontein was in the capital of the Orange Free State. Um, but because the, the climate was very difficult, um, his mother brought him uh, to, uh, to England and then his father uh, became ill and died. So he lost his father quite, quite young. And um, they, so he and his mother and his brother Hillary stayed in, um, in England. They moved to a little hamlet called Sare Hole outside of Birmingham. Um, and uh, Tolkien was educated by um, the Oratorians, uh, which is a Catholic religious order that was actually brought to the British Isles by John Henry Newman. Um, his his mother had converted to Catholicism and brought her two little boys along with her, um, and she but she died young from diabetes. Uh, Tolkien was always convinced that what really killed her was that her family ostracized her for for becoming Catholic. So he harbored both a, a deep seated loyalty to his Catholic uh, upbringing and uh, a sense of somewhat of being under siege as such. So uh, he was, his education continued under the guardianship of one of the Oratorian priests, Father Francis, um, and uh, he was living in a boarding house, but eventually he was, he was basically adopted by Father Francis. Um, he went to a, a very excellent uh, school called King Edward School in Birmingham, and he made some friends there that are kind of like a... a foreshadowing of the Inklings. One of the characteristic features of the Inklings as a, as a circle is, is strong male bonding. Um, it is an all-male society. Um, and so his first experience of that was with a group that named itself the Tea Club and Barovian Society. Um, they, had a, they were very idealistic young men who had a, um, an aspiration to write poetry, to kindle beauty that would, that would um, recover the, the culture, kind of save the world, um, in a sense of the world being under a cloud, a fallen world, and that through art it could be redeemed. Uh, but then the First World War comes. Tolkien served in the trenches in the um, infamous Battle of the Somme. Um, in fact, um, if you've read The Lord of the Rings or if you've seen the films, The Dead Marshes in The Lord of the Rings is pretty much uh, based on those, the landscapes that he experienced during trench warfare. All but one of Tolkien's friends was dead by the year 1918. So, that's, so the loss of his father, the loss of his mother, um, a certain sense of isolation in his Catholicism, and then the, the catastrophe of the Great War and the loss of his friends and the breaking of the fellowship, so to speak, of uh, of this uh, society. So all these losses, and then he became, you know, very sensitized to um, what was happening just to the landscape in England. Uh, that what industrialization was doing to the landscape was a kind of a war too, a kind of siege also. Um, so the landscapes that he loved were were, were um, falling victim to progress and to things like uh, what he called the infernal combustion engine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, this, 
his mother had instilled in him a great love of language and also of art. Um, she was quite an amazing person herself. Um, and uh, so he, he drew a lot of pictures as a young person and began to invent uh, rudimentary languages later on that would become a major theme of his work, if not an obsession for him. Um, see, he came to think that all this destruction of the landscape, of culture, um, and simply death everywhere, the death of, of all these young men who were so promising, um, was uh, meant that there, there was something he was called upon to do as one of the surviving members of this youthful poetic fellowship. It was he had a real sense of of a vocation that he had to carry the torch for the other members of his little brotherhood. Um, and and to do something about how the England he loved was passing away. So what could he do about that? He had two kinds of of skills, skill sets you might say that he could um, bring to bear on this uh, catastrophe. And one was um, his talent as an artist especially a kind of visionary artist. He, he started out doing some realistic artwork, but, but generally speaking, his artwork is, is on, on the fantastic level. But also as a storyteller and as someone in love with language. Actually, I think that's three things, isn't it? <laughs> language, uh, a mythopoeic imagination, a storytelling imagination, and a visual imagination um, that he thought um, could in some way be part of a... Of a collective effort to repair this culture that had suffered so much and, and that where there had been so many ruptures. So um, when he started to become interested in medieval studies, one of the things that was really um, kind of um, motivating and connected to his sense of, of loss in, uh, was, was, of course, his study of the Norman Conquest. So the year 1066, um, which led to the... Um, uh, cutting off of the development of Anglo-Saxon language and culture. So what he wanted to do was in some way recover that lost past as a scholar and then as an imaginative writer as well. That's pretty much Tolkien summed up. It, that int- that, uh, that uh, theme that you mentioned of cultural defense is something that you see in a uh, different way in, in, in C.S. Lewis as well in, in, in so many ways. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, you know, his early years and, 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 and his wartime experience and then his development, uh, the degree to which was, you know, was it similar to Tolkien's? Did he come at it from a very different perspective? What brought him to uh, that point in the, in the interwar period where his life and Tolkien start to intertwine? Yeah. So um, Lewis um, is uh, Ulster background, Northern Ireland, Belfast region. So that's a very different um, background. Um, his uh, family was connected to the um, uh, to the Church of England in, in Ireland, so to speak. Um, and uh, he grew up together with his young brother, uh, younger brother, um, sorry, older brother, uh, Warney or Warren Lewis. Um, and, uh, they also had, uh, early uh, indications of a desire to create fantastic other worlds to live in. So, um, 
they would uh, they, they used to create these lands. Let's see, um, Lewis had one called Animal Land, um, and uh, his brother Warney had uh, a land called India, and eventually they combined them and called them Boxen. Uh, they also uh, Lewis also was shaped by an early loss, the death of his mother, and uh, resulting estrangement, sadly enough, from his father, who was himself quite a character. He's a police court solicitor, um, very argumentative, very, very eccentric, and actually mercilessly sent up by Lewis in Lewis's um, autobiographical writing. Um, he, Lewis was sent to um, boarding schools in England, um, and because really the family kind of saw itself as English, these Anglo-Irish people, um, like Yeats, for instance, um, but without as much of a desire to connect to the Celtic heritage. Uh, so um, he was sent to boarding school. He has he left behind a memoir called "Surprised by Joy," which talks about his ordeals in boarding school being uh, beaten and uh, learning to uh, try to be part of an in crowd, uh, which he came to think is one of the kind of original sins of humanity. Um, So uh, while he was um, enduring the hardships of uh, of his boarding schools, um, and he did have one really insane master who ended up being institutionalized uh, right after Lewis left that school. Um, he kind of retreated into an inner world uh, where he had, uh, again, uh, a sense of possible renewal through contact with imaginary worlds. So that could come to him through reading Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, another source for him was Beatrix Potter's Squirrel Nutkin. He says it gave him the idea of autumn. All these things spoke to him in some way that was hard for him to articulate, but later on he he referred to it under the name of joy, a sense of longing for something beyond the confines of the world he was living in, whether it was boarding school or some kind of just drab um, industrial uh, setting. Shaped so, by early friendships. Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, I mean, Tolkien and Lewis are both very familiar figures to us, but then you also talk about these other two uh, names who mm-hmm. are, are featured in your title, Owen Barfield and Charles Williams. And they're not quite as uh, commonly known today uh, as, right. as they might have been. I was wondering if you could perhaps I- explain a, a bit more about who they were and their contribution. Because early in the book, you, you, you set up how each of them brings something slightly different uh, to the group. And while we, right. we might tend to focus upon the achievements of, of Tolkien and Lewis because their writings are are so omnipresent today, you know, Barfield and Williams were both very important figures in their own right. And and, and especially fascinated by Williams because it seemed like in, in some ways uh, in, in at, at the, uh, you know, in the 1930s and in, in the uh, early 40s, he seemed to outshine some of them in, in terms of the uh, exchange that the Inklings were having. Yeah, so Barfield is a very interesting character. Uh, he, he lived actually until 1997, so um, almost 100 um, when he died. Um, so he was, um, let's see, he, he met Lewis in 1919, I believe, um, when he came to study in Oxford. Um, he was a member of a 
of a movement or a participant in a movement called Anthroposophy, founded by the Austrian philosopher and kind of visionary figure Rudolf Steiner. Um, he was very attracted to Romanticism, wrote about Coleridge, and um, was, uh, like Tolkien and Lewis, uh, really interested in the power of words, of language, and the history of language. Uh, he had a theory, actually, that if you studied the history of language, sort of traced back, uh, looking at etymologies and, and word forms, that you could actually map the evolution of human consciousness, that the history of language is the history of consciousness, and that there have been some radical changes in human consciousness um, that are that are registered if you go back far enough and, and look at um, language. So, for instance... Um, the word, um, the Greek word um, that is often translated as spirit, noima, um, I believe the word sneeze is etymologically um, <laughs> related to it. Um, it, it. It combines ideas of breath and wind and spirit. So what a lot of um, theorists of language were, would say was that, um, you know, originally you had these words that meant breath or wind. And uh, eventually they got um, interpreted in terms of, or they got overlaid with some kind of spiritual significance. And then the spiritual significance became the, the predominant one. But Barfield really believed that there was a time when in humanity, all of these meanings were one. There was a kind of a union of all of them. And there was no distinction between the material and the spiritual. And that there was a sort of catastrophe in which the two got separated and um, his hope was that in some way we could integrate them again with the advantages of our sophisticated knowledge that we have now. Um, so he uh, did a, a, he wrote a book called Poetic Diction, um, which was a big influence on the other inklings because it looked at, the, at language in this way as a kind of living force in culture and not simply as a mode of uh, tool of communication. He was also a dancer um, and, um, and, you know, hoped to have a philosophical career. He wasn't quite as successful, partly for financial reasons. He didn't have the freedom. Um, he had to keep working um, uh, as a solicitor just, just to make ends meet. Um, but he was, uh, talk he was Lewis's first adult friend. And before the Inklings even existed, he and Lewis and Barfield and others used to go on these great walking tours where they would discuss, debate, recite poetry, argue about metaphysical questions. Hmm. So uh, that so he's important in that way and in other ways. And, and, and before, with last you have you have Williamson, and Williams was you know, one who probably. He had, he had the shortest life, and it, yeah. in that respect, he also has uh, he doesn't have quite the same body of literature uh, which sustains his uh, his his memory today in, in in the minds of most readers. But uh, but he also was a, was a very fascinating personality, and he and he, he seems to come in, in into the group almost uh, sideways in some ways because he's yeah uh -huh. he, he doesn't have quite the same uh, academic uh, background. It's 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 a little bit different. Yeah, he's fascinating. So um, Lewis introduced him to the Inklings, and Tolkien had somewhat mixed feelings about him. Um, 
But actually, I would say that Charles Williams um, was the one more than any of the other Inklings to make the idea of fellowship, like the Fellowship of the Ring, or we could say the Fellowship of the Inklings themselves. It's also where we got our title for the book from, and make that an explicit principle of of theology and of uh, criticism. So I should say a little bit about him because he's not as well known. Uh, one way he differed from Tolkien is is his love of the city. Uh, he was born in London, which would then henceforth be known simply as the city. Um, his father was a as a clerk um, who had wanted to be a writer but had visual problems that led to them moving out of London, the city, which would become kind of a mythical place for, for Williams, kind of like it was for William Blake. Um, so uh, they they opened a little stationery shop. The family did, and and uh, lived there on on really near poverty, very very uh, impoverished means. Um, but um, his the father gave Charles a a kind of a homeschooling experience, a very wide ranging um, literary and imaginative education. Um, and he was brought up in the Church of England, um, but his father encouraged Charles to read um, eclectically, even to read atheist tracts, you know, not to, not to um, close his mind against other possibilities. Um, so Charles did not have, as you said, the academic career that Lewis or Tolkien had, but he did get a scholarship to University College London and commuted there from home. But then he had to drop out because of financial problems got an, a job in a, a bookshop, a Methodist bookshop, and then eventually from there, he got a job at Oxford University Press, which is where he spent the rest of his life working for them. So the, the headquarters of, of Oxford University Press were in London, but um, um, during the, the, uh, the war, um, they, they moved their headquarters um, to, to Oxford. Um, so thing about Williams is he lived in a completely mythic world. He, he would write these plays in which everybody, all his co-workers would become these uh, sort of mythical figures. Um, he called his boss Caesar. He gave everybody names. Sometimes they were all parts of King Arthur's court. <laughs> um, he had this tremendous sense of kind of courtesy and magic. Um, he eventually got involved in... Um, A.E. Waite's Magical Society. This is that A.E. Waite was an important um, Anglican magician or Anglican uh, with an interest in uh, perhaps some of the people who know about tarot cards have come across a a deck that was uh, designed under the influence of A.E. Waite. Um, So um, I've skipped ahead a little bit, but... um, he uh, had a platonic love affair with a co-worker that was kind of like his Beatrice, like Dante and Beatrice. Uh, in fact, he wrote a fantastic book about Dante uh, focusing on the figure of Beatrice, called The Figure of Beatrice. Um, he was kind of a Platonist. In fact, one of, one of his novels, he wrote a group of novels that C.S. Lewis referred to as supernatural shockers. They all had magical elements in them, and one of them the platonic archetypes come to earth and wreak havoc <laughs> until by some magical means they're called back up to their um, origins. Um, actually, the way um, 
Lewis and Williams met and what led to Williams being invited to join the Inklings was that um, when um, Oxford Unity Press um, was evacuated to Oxford um, from London, um, one of the uh, manuscripts that came into Williams' lap was the uh, proofs of a book by C.S. Lewis called The Allegory of Love, uh, which is uh, Lewis's first major book, actually, work of medieval scholarship that focuses on courtly love and also on the allegorical imagination. Very fascinating book. Williams saw the manuscript. He loved it. Um, he said, this is my you know, kind of romantic theology, as he called it. Um, and just as he was writing to Lewis, he got a letter from Lewis praising his novel, the one about the platonic archetypes coming to Earth. Um, so it was like they almost crossed in the mail, these letters. So they immediately became really close friends. Lewis and, uh, and Tolkien had been, well, you know, Lewis had all these sort of best friends. He was best friends with a friend from, uh, from his uh, Belfast boyhood. He was best friends with Barfield. He was best friends with Tolkien. And now he was also best friends with Charles Williams. And Tolkien was a little bit jealous uh, because Tolkien didn't have all these best friends. He and Lewis were really, uh, Lewis was really uh, the, the key friend for him. So that when Lewis died, Tolkien said it was like an axe to his roots. Um, anyway, so Williams came into the fellowship, bringing with him, the, I mean, to, into the Inklings, uh, which was just a club. We haven't said that, have we? What was the Inklings? <laughs> I, I, I was actually going to say, but the, by the time you know, Williams comes the picture of the Inklings, sorry, a formed group, I was wondering if you could take us back and explain how it was they came together and what purpose the Inklings initially served for them. Right. Um, so the Inklings um, is a tongue-in-cheek name for a club. Uh, clubs were a really big deal, and um, I think in, in uh, academic settings, universities, and cities, um, it's just a British thing. And we hear about club ability. Actually, when Tolkien first went up to Oxford to begin his undergraduate education at Exeter College, he was famous for joining every club that existed. Well, there was a club um, that had been uh, founded by another student um, called the Inklings, and it was a pun, uh, you know, combining the idea of having an inkling about something and making little ink blots that is trying to write. So um, Lewis and Tolkien, who had also been part of a club together studying Icelandic language and, and, and mythology, group called the Colbiders joined this Inklings Club. And then when the guy who founded it graduated, they, they just kept it going. And, um, and Lewis especially was kind of the hub of it and the main person who would invite others to join. So this, this group would um, meet together. Um, this is by the time this started, Lewis was um, uh, an Oxford um, Don at um, Maudlin College in Oxford. They would meet in his rooms um, and uh, once a week, and then another day a week, they would meet at a pub, usually um, a pub called the Eagle and Child, nicknamed the Bird and Baby. <laughs> so when they would meet in Lewis's rooms, they would be they would read out loud to each other uh, works that they were writing, works in progress, and they would criticize them, and they would drink and you know, have a pretty wonderful, uproarious time. 
if anybody else criticized the works of fellow members of the Inklings, they would close ranks to defend them. An example of that was um, uh, when uh, Lewis started writing um, that what's called came to be called the Space Trilogy. He wrote this book called Out of the Silent Planet. Um, Tolkien had a lot of criticisms criticisms of it. Tolkien was the only one who really created a completely fully realized imaginative universe. No one before him, no one since since him, no one within this circle came anywhere close to that. So he had a very high bar for, for what a good fantasy or mythopaic piece of literature would be like. And what Lewis was writing, which he would just sort of dash off, um, never quite um, satisfied um, Tolkien. But when an outside reviewer wanted uh, Out of the Silent Planet to be rejected, Tolkien wrote to the publisher and said, this guy is an obvious um, idiot. And <laughs> he just doesn't understand. He doesn't understand angels. He doesn't understand imaginative cosmologies. He doesn't understand anything medieval. Um, so uh, so that was the Inklings was this kind of uh, fellowship of uh, all for one, one for all in some ways, but also... Um, mutual criticism, which, which really, um, I think improved their work if it hadn't been for the encouragement too, that, um, that Tolkien received, uh, we wouldn't have a Lord of the Rings. He was reading that aloud at Inkling's meetings. One of the things I thought you do in the book that was really interesting was you look at what each of them brings to it intellectually. And, and here we're talking, you've, you've already talked about they're, they're, you know, Tolkien's academic background, Lewis's academic background, Barfield's academic background, but you also get into their beliefs and their faiths, and 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 you 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 point out how they're how different they are, and in in maybe a global spectrum, it wasn't that different. We're talking about you know people who are you know generally you know believers, not believers in, in in a Christian God, and yet they are bringing very they are bringing within that context different perspectives on. They, they, they're not a shared group of like-minded people in the sense they all think the same way they have different perspectives and you delve into that i thought that was very fascinating what do you feel that that you know in particular each one of them brought to these exchanges in terms of that religious worldview that 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 intellectual perspective and and how might we see that reflected in some of the works that these writers are, are producing during this period right um so uh I mean, you're, when you talk about their their religious point of view, where there's both a, sh- a shared perspective and differences, I mean, it com- somewhat comes down to denominational differences, I suppose. Tolkien, as I've mentioned before, was an ardent Catholic, going back to his mother's conversion, um, and um, Lewis was an um, Anglican. Once he became Christian, he he describes a whole process of his conversion in the in the memoir. Uh, Surprised by joy, he went through various stages of of atheism, skepticism, occultism, uh, trying out different kinds of spiritual paths, and uh, and ended up Christian. Um, and uh, he figured that he should just be part of his national church, just be an ordinary, um, you know, British. Christian, which meant Church of England. Um, it was really important to Lewis to be able, when he started to write works of Christian uh, philosophy and reflection, that he should be able to speak to Christians of all sorts. But Tolkien 
suspected Lewis of of still har- of harboring some anti-Catholic prejudice going back to his own Ulster background and to the conflicts in, in Ireland. Um, in fact, Tolkien referred to that as Lewis's ulterior motive. Ul- sorry, ulterior <laughs> motive. Um, so Lewis is an ecumenically minded Anglican. Tolkien is a devout and very old-fashioned and conservative Catholic. Um, when the uh, changes happened from after the Second Vatican Council, um, I think it was his grandson heard him at Mass shouting out the responses in Latin when everybody else is using English. Um, so um, Tolkien had a very strong sense of the sacraments. Um, um, but he's not, Tolkien's not interested in writing theology or apologetics, as Lewis came to do. Um, Barfield, as I mentioned, was a, a member of this um, Society of Anthroposophy, which was a kind of uh, Christian mysticism, but um, but not wholly orthodox. Um, and uh, Charles Williams was a, a, a member in good standing of the Church of England, but he was also involved in various magical practices. Um, so um, it's hard to define that. So they're all different um, in that way, but they all have Christianity in common, and they all have the sense that um, the, that this world is, is a fallen world, and yet not a forsaken world, that it's a world that will be redeemed. And that to some extent they're called upon to um, either to collaborate in or perhaps just to respond in some way to to the ongoing remaking, renewing of of the world. Um, So if you think of it in terms of the the Shire, the Shire um, at the very end of uh, The Lord of the Rings um, is destroyed, but there's also hope for its renewal. Um, so they have that in common. They're, they really are in some ways a kind of late-stage romanticism. They have that in common, too. Their love of medieval literature and culture, their love of, of fairy, of the whole, like, as, fairy as a place, <laughs> um, and of fairy tales within that place. Um, so, uh, you know, you could, you could associate them in some ways with Wordsworth and Coleridge, and even William Blake, but um, but unlike the original romantics or the first couple generations of romantics, um, there's no sense in them of of wanting to rebel. They're all in one way or another trying to be within the mainstream of classical Christianity. Um, none of them are atheists, certainly. We don't have any Shelleys there, but they are. They do have a lot in common with the Romantic movement. Um, they all love language. They all think. Language is powerful, has a sort of cosmic metaphysical power to it. Um, they all they all believe in the in the power of storytelling, which is it sounds kind of trite because you know everybody loves stories. But in terms of literature, they were definitely marching to a different drummer when you think about different kinds of modernist movements that were going on um, in um, the sort of highbrow circles of. Oxford, Cambridge, London, and so on. Um, they, you know, did, Tolkien once said, you know, these, these sort of modernist readers hate my work, but that's okay. I have no interest in theirs. You know, <laughs> just that kind of um, realistic, but, you know, impeccably styled writing 
um, just was was just not their cup of tea. So they have that in common too. That um, they're interested in stories of the kind that you find in fairy tales, rather than in very um, finely nuanced psychological um, depictions, um, like Mrs. Dalloway, things like that, which are brilliant, you know. But they just—that's just not their thing at all. So, so they they make common cause against modernism in literature, against modernity in terms of of its negative side. It's you know industrialization, dehumanization, war environmental catastrophe um for them being medievalists in a way as scholars is also being medievalists of the romantic sort kind of wishing that we could recapture some of that worldview and way of life and and yet yet for you know all of that sort of regret about the you know, modern world, if you will, that they're so very much part of it. I thought that especially came through when you're talking about World War II, because you have this other conflict and rather, and and, and there, especially when you're talking about the the relocation of uh, the OUP headquarters to Oxford, there's a sense that they really, you know, they, they could have sat there and retreated from it. They could have treated Oxford as sort of a, a, a very, you know, genteel funk hole, but instead mm-hmm. they, you know, they, 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 are very involved in, in what's going on with it. They're, they're very much engaged with the world. You describe Lewis has this, uh, you know, very remarkable rise during this period to becoming, the, this is the period where he really emerges as this foremost Christian apologist in, 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 yeah. uh, in the English speaking world. So how does the war kind of, if, if we, if you will, crystallize the the, the inklings in, in a way and, and and also help to uh you know both you know kind of uh, uh, give them greater stature and while at the same time you know also uh, uh, in unfortunately in the case of williams uh start to shrink their circle as well yeah um so it's really the first world war that is the the important war to think about in in terms of of uh at least uh Lewis and, and Tolkien, they were both um, at the front. They both saw um, uh, lots of death and lost friends. Um, they both experienced Oxford when it was basically given over to be barracks. Um, and um, uh, that, you know, that was at an age, too, that was, that was so formative for them. Um, during the Second World War, they were too old to, to serve at the front. Um, so they had different roles. And as you mentioned, Lewis in particular had, um, acquired a whole new public voice uh, during the Second World War. What happened was um, Lewis uh, became Christian in uh, the early 1930s. Um, he decided to do a little bit of writing about that. He wrote an allegorical uh, piece. It's not one of his best works called The Pilgrim's Regress. So a kind of version of uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which has got a lot of satire in it of the sort of cultural follies of the time. It's not great, but it's interesting. <laughs> um, but um, an editor was intrigued by it and asked Lewis to write um, for uh, a series of books of, on Christian themes, um, a little book talking about the problem of evil and of pain. That became the book called The Problem of Pain. Um, and that launched him. So then the, um, during the, during the second world war, when, uh, radio was really important way of, uh, raising spirits of marshalling energy, um, 
Lewis was invited to give these sort of 15-minute talks on, on Christianity. And those are the talks that became published later, um, eventually, as the book Mere Christianity. Um, at that time, it was said that he, his was the second most recognized voice. You know, people would hear it and know who it was, next to Winston Churchill. And there was a certain amount in common in the sense, I mean, all of them, actually. When um, Tolkien's writing about the hobbits, these sort of um, brave little ordinary, just really ordinary people, but when, but when the Shire is attacked or when their values are attacked, they're incredibly stubborn and, and amazingly resilient and strong, as no one would suspect. That's sort of Churchill, what Churchill's trying to convey uh, and inspire about the British people um, comes across in, in uh, um, Tolkien's Hobbit. But, um, but the, the First World War had a greater, um, a more profound influence, I think, um, uh, on Tolkien's imagination in the Second World War. So, um, so yeah, so Lewis became then the public voice of Christianity and has remained in many ways to, to, to a great extent, has remained that. Um, it, it was not something that Tolkien was all that fond of, actually, that, that Lewis was, was doing that. Tolkien didn't, didn't really, um, well, well, one thing Tolkien hated was, was using fiction uh, to make a sort of didactic appeal you know, to convert people. He said, he called that allegory. I think, I think that allegory has a number of different meanings, but in the sense that Tolkien despised it, uh, there's a sort of thing Lewis would, would, was doing with the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it was just too obvious, the Christian message. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Tolkien felt that if, you know, he writes as a Christian, he tells um, his, his dear friend, the priest, um, a priest who actually, just recently died. Um, he tells him that the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally Christian and Catholic book, but that that message is deeply submerged in it. It's not obvious. It doesn't hit you over the head. It's not like you have point for point correspondences. You might have some Christ figures, but they kind of keep changing. Who's the Christ figure changes. Um, so, um, but but Lewis was uh, was willing to to present his Christian worldview in a very clear, basic, simple, you know, fifteen minute sound bites, and also in a kind of transparently in his fiction. Now we've been talking about these four figures here and uh, how they the the kind of the they come together and they support each other and they critique each other. But as you explain in the book, it's not just those four. That, that there are other people that that come mm -hmm. in, like Tolkien's son. You mentioned you know other people like Dorothy. Yeah, Sears who just who died. Yes, yeah. yes, I know. Yeah. Uh, did Did you have a chance to speak to him uh, uh, for the book before I? Passed? No, we didn't um, actually. Um, although we certainly benefited from his work, um, but. Um, we we were just hoping that the Tolkien estate would would allow us to um, to use a lot of this material, and as it turned out, they were very very good about that. Um, but we we had been warned that it might not be easy. Hmm. Um, so no, we didn't communicate with him personally because by the time that we were doing this book, he had actually retired from his work in the Tolkien estate. So we just dealt with the Tolkien estate. Hmm. But we certainly admire him. I'm mean, without Christopher Tolkien. So much of, of, of his father's mythology would be lost, and also so much of, of our understanding of what went into the making of The Lord of the Rings. So we have the 12-volume 
history of Middle Earth, which has drafts of different aspects of the Lord of the Rings, but which, and then we have, the, and we have the Silmarillion, uh, which is the uh, the original work that Tolkien did, which began um, when he was in the trenches, actually, mm-hmm. uh, creating what he called a mythology for England, um, a kind of imagined um, ancient past for England that would also in some ways be diagnostic of and um, uh, and uh, creative creative in um, in in England trying to find itself again um, so um, it would be also of course with many universal themes um, so he, he was starting to create this uh, this whole cosmology and um, when he was in the trenches um, and then it was his lifelong dream to to publish it, um, but it really it never caught the attention of publishers. They always thought nobody's going to want to read this. So um, he had written a, a children's book for just for his kids, The Hobbit. You know the story of how The Hobbit got started. Uh, could you uh, relate it for those who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, um, he had to take on sort of academic piecework to help support his family. So in the summers, he would grade examination papers. It was really grunt work, really pretty dreadful, but um, he had to do it as the paterfamilias to support his growing family. Um, so one day he was grading these papers and uh, on one paper had a blank page on it. He was so happy to see the blank page. He just started writing something. And what he found himself writing was in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Um, so this is his his version of it anyway. He's, he's told many in many venues. Um, he didn't know yet what the Hobbit was, um, but um, he uh, turned it into a story for his kids, um, and um, they loved it. And uh, it eventually got published. So then the, the and it was a tremendous success. Uh, so the publisher wanted a sequel to the Hobbit. And Tolkien tried and tried to, to, to write the sequel. It, it took him 12 years to create what would become the Lord of the Rings. Um, the thing was that he had this mythology that he was working on, and uh, he wanted to publish that. He couldn't interest the publishers in it. But he found that it kept kind of creeping into this sequel to The Hobbit, um, which he would be reading at Inkling's meetings, and they were just calling it you know, the, the Hobbit sequel. Um, so, um, you know, at the end of The Hobbit, it says that Bilbo, uh, remained very happy to the end of his days. Um, yeah. So, uh, he had to figure out how to, how to create a sequel. So in order to create a sequel, he had to, uh, have other characters come into play. Couldn't be Bilbo going off on another adventure. Um, so as he started to work on the, the Hobbit sequel, um, it became less and less like a children's book. It became darker. Um, so for instance, in the, in the, uh, actually he ended up revising the Hobbit so that it would fit better with the Lord of the Rings later. But in the original version of the Hobbit, Bilbo had stumbled upon a magic ring that confers invisibility. Um, and, uh, you know, he could use it to get through various difficult situations and uh, so in Tolkien's notes, as he's trying to create what would become the Lord of the Rings, he writes, 
not very dangerous when used for a good purpose. <laughs> so obviously he's like, he changed his mind about the ring. Um, and uh, there's a figure called the Necromancer who becomes the Dark Lord Sauron, who's the maker of the Rings of Power and wants to, you know, is planning to conquer Middle Earth, which is just a part of this Earth um, by means of this master ring. And then all these other beings started to come in from Tolkien's great myth that he was working on. So the, the elves, the high elves, um, the orcs and the Urukai and the Ents and the, the wizards, the Astari and Gandalf. Um, uh, so um, the Lord of the Rings grew that way. Um, and uh, with the with the encouragement of C.S. Lewis, without whom it would certainly not have seen the light of day. That's one of the uh, points of the book I thought was especially fascinating because <clears throat> the Inklings are, as a group uh, survived the war. And they continue writing, but as they are gathering, there's by this point, you know, uh, the Hobbit comes out in 1938. Uh, uh, Lewis has gains his stature during the war, so after the war, they're still coming together. But now they have this this aura around them, and and, and they 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 have this fame, which is, is is drawing a lot of people to them. Did how did the Inklings survive this? At what point did 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 they not survive it any longer? And and what ultimately uh, was the, the the fate of of the key individuals involved in in, in the Inklings group? Well, um, the really the major um, celebrity status for Tolkien was really in the sixties, so it wasn't so bad right right at the beginning. Um, I think it was still you know possible to think of the Lord of Rings of the Rings as a kind of uh, as would say the work of a professor at play. <laughs> um, so a lot of people appreciated it, but he wasn't a rock star. But he became a rock star in the hippie era when, you know, hippies would, would come over from the States, you know, and try to, you know, climb into his garden and, and take a look at him and try to get pictures and things like that. So, um, and that was pretty awful for him. Um, so, yeah, he just simply tried to dodge it as much as he could. Lewis, on the other hand, I think the major form that his celebrity took was in the form of uh, letters that he would get from fans and very often letters asking for spiritual advice, sometimes letters asking for financial help, which he actually um, did um, respond to. He responded to every letter. He had help from his brother, Warney, who sort of acted as a secretary. Um, but it was really extraordinary. I mean, I, I have a hard time keeping up with letters from... And he just it would answer everybody's letter and sometimes at great length and, and you know, end up becoming like a, almost like a spiritual director to some of the people that, that wrote to him. And he had Owen Barfield, who was um, his solicitor, um, set up a special fund for his royalties to be deposited into, which would then be used for charity. So that when someone called, you know, wrote to him and said, um, uh, you know, my husband just left me and I've got nothing and. He would say to Barfield, um, you know, send, send some of that money to this person. So, yeah, that would be the main Is Celebrityhood, not quite so bad in the 30s as it is now, or as it became in the 60s. <laughs> and it was especially interesting because, as, as uh, you and your husband point out, by the 1960s, not only uh, is the celebrity growing, but they're actually becoming the subject of academic study. So, by yeah. the, so they, they've actually lived to see themselves become, you know, 
the 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 sort of groups and works that they themselves had went at one point studied uh, in terms of previous generations. Yes, although they had a real prejudice against studying modern literature in an academic format. I think Lewis says something like, "You might as well, you know, have a." I'm, I'm really paraphrasing. Have a professor, um, you know, teach you about modern literature as, as have a nurse wipe your nose for you or something like that. He said, you should be able to figure it out for yourself. You don't need, uh, you know, uh, scholarly apparatus to understand a work that's basically contemporary with you. What you should be studying, Lewis and Tolkien agreed on this, and they were part of a kind of faction at Oxford trying to control the uh, curriculum in English literature, is you should be studying this, the stuff that's... that's um, alien to you culturally within your own even if it's within your own tradition of english language tradition um you should be studying beowulf um you should be um learning the germanic languages um everything that happened before the norman conquest and after the norman conquest that's what you should be studying and writing doctoral theses on and so on not um you know, not T.S. Eliot, not Lewis, not Tolkien, but of course nobody's paying attention to that. That's definitely <laughs> how they felt. They they finally agreed that it would be okay for this English syllabus to stop at Jane Austen, but not beyond that. <laughs> and Lewis said, you know, reading old books is is um, is a great way to get out of your kind of cultural captivity, to be able to um, you know to uh, break out of a kind of conformity that we're not even that conscious of to see with other eyes which he says is basically why we read the purpose of reading they all agree all the inklings would agree to this lewis said that um the, the reason we read is that we want to see with other eyes than our own we want to feel with other hearts uh we want to she says we seek an enlargement of our being um that's the purpose of reading that's the purpose of fantasy of, you know, it isn't just uh, some some kind of low-grade kind of titillating entertainment to have dragons and magicians and so on. It, its purpose is actually similar from reading a treatise by Athanasius, that is, to take you out of your narrow, constricted mindset, enable you to see other possibilities. And then when you return to your ordinary world, suddenly it's enchanted again. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, yeah. Um, a couple of things. Uh, I just gave a lecture here at Smith on uh, William James and the making of the varieties of religious experience and on how James, is, James himself, the great American philosopher, psychologist, and his great work on religion are both, in a certain sense, a kind of unfinished project. So I got really excited about that. I've always been very fond of William James, and I'm thinking about making that into a book. I have another project on immortality, the search for immortality. And then my husband and I, we do a lot of writing together. We've written on prayer and heaven and hell and, um, and this book, The Fellowship. We're, we're currently brainstorming about what we want to do next together. Well, I, I do look forward to what that project uh, produces because this was a, a, a truly, uh, you know, very excellent, stimulating work uh, on on the Inklings. Thank you. You're very welcome, uh, Carol Zaleski. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. <laughs>